Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the death of George Floyd has sparked protests and demonstrations across the world. Is the answer defunding police and directing the money elsewhere? And a new study from the University of Toronto suggests that due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we could see a spike in suicide deaths. Taking care of your mental health during a pandemic. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Protests seem to be a a little uh, uh, less violent, we will say. Uh, last night, this all, of course, uh, as a result of the death of George Floyd. And now the uh, charges have been upgraded as well for those officers. All four officers now uh, have been charged. Interesting. Here's a clip from Barack Obama and what he had to say about this. In some ways, as tragic as these past few weeks have been, as difficult and scary and uncertain as they've been, they've also been an incredible opportunity for people to be awakened all right let's bring in reggie Giacchini, washington producer and correspondent with global news he is with us now reggie thank you for the time hope you're doing well uh reggie you've been down there for a few years is it different this time it is different this time uh and it's because it has become a national crisis uh because there is a growing number of people across this country who are feeling a generational rage and because of that uh, they have taken this one incident in Minneapolis and they are using it now as the final example that they say they want to see change. You know, when we saw uh, we've seen this before uh, when it's, you know, the, the loss of an Amer- African-American life in police hands, whether it was, uh, you know, Freddie Gray or Philando Castile or Sandra Bland or any of the countless names before that isolated protests break out. This one has hit a national scale. This one is different. Considering the video and, and, and those, those several minutes that we have all seen, is there now denying that there is a problem? Can you now deny that, can you still deny that there is, that there is not an issue here? Well, I mean, people are denying it and people are playing ignorance when it comes to uh, the fact that there is an institutionalized problem with discrimination against people of color in this country and that there is uh, systemic race, uh, racism across police forces uh, in America. We've heard that from police chiefs. We've been hearing this from lawmakers from both political parties that things need to change. But top-down messaging means a lot in this country. And even in the Trump administration, you have uh, active members of his own cabinet saying that there is not a systemic racism problem across police forces, chalking it up to simply just a few bad eggs. But if it's just a few bad eggs, then you have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of cartons of those eggs that are just sitting around the country. Because if it was isolated and just a few bad eggs, you wouldn't have this kind of anger. You know, we've talked to uh, uh, those that have watched demonstrations over the years. There's always fringe elements. There's always, uh, and we're seeing that here, fringe from the left or the right, extremists who are trying to derail uh, the message behind this protest. There's also those that will go in and take advantage uh, uh, and loot and such. That being said, the vast majority of these people that are protesting are doing so peacefully. Can Is America still not recognizing this and just looking at these groups as all a bunch of thugs? Well, I mean, the president's words have uh, deep meaning in this country, and they have a deep impact 
uh, when he says things like the, 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 the protesters that are gathering in the streets are quote-unquote thugs, calling them Antifa. Uh, today, once again, using the term terrorist and terrorism to describe what's happening with, uh, with these protests, which in some case are leading to uh, aggression and bouts of rioting and rage. Yes, there are extreme portions to these protests. That happens in any protest. The issue is here the, the president and people around the president are solely equating this to be a problem from the far left. And we already know that on the far right, there are investigations uh, that are being opened up into members of extreme right groups that were posing as members of extreme left groups to try and get this violence going even more. Uh, there are issues on either end of this, but largely it is peaceful protests. But when the president draws attention to the violence, it takes away from the message that so many more people are trying to get across. All right. New charges yesterday. Uh, the officer uh, responsible for kneeling on uh, the neck of George Floyd has his charge upgraded. The other three were also charged. Has that had an impact on these demonstrations or the violence that has surrounded them in some areas? It has. Uh, you know, despite the fact that this is, is less than 24 hours old, that these new charges have been laid and they're still uh, calling for additional or at least upgraded charges against all four officers. Uh, there was a moment uh, of, of joy on the streets yesterday in Minnesota, in New York, in New Orleans, here in Washington, D.C., where you saw protesters cheering, uh, saying that the wheels of justice are rolling. They feel like they're heading the right direction. And they feel that, you know, not just nine or 10 days of protesting after the death of George Floyd, but in the protests that have happened in the past, they feel that their message is starting to be heard. You know, the family of George Floyd, the lawyer for the family of George Floyd, is saying that they want to see an increase in charges to first-degree murder. Uh, the investigation, according to the attorney general, is still ongoing. But this is a very big moment for these protesters. Uh, when we started off this conversation, we played the, cl the clip of Barack Obama. Uh, what has the reaction been to him weighing in? Well, you know, it's it's not just Barack Obama's message. Yes, he is the most recent president, and yes, he, he broke through the ceilings of being the first African-American president, and that obviously has resonated across this country and still continues so. He does have an incredible uh, following, and he does have uh, a lot of sway when it comes to the Democratic Party, but it's more than just Barack Obama. It is George W. Bush. It's also Jimmy Carter. We have former administrations actively working together to say that America has a problem. America needs to fix its history. It needs to move forward going in a different direction. These are uh, 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 repeated comments that we're hearing from all former leaders at the White House. And it's a stark difference and a big contrast to the language that's being used by President Trump, where he is not focusing on George Floyd's death. He's not focusing on the systemic problems when it comes to discrimination in this country. He's focusing on political matters and politicizing the death of an African-American man to get his own agenda moving forward. Uh, and it shows that words make a difference. When these former administration, uh, former leaders are talking from different political stripes, it's a common message. And you're not getting that from Donald Trump. We've certainly uh, seen and heard his position on, uh, on being aggressive and, and bringing the military or military elements into this. Uh, what, what ha and this is a hypothetical question. Um, what happens if, you know, as the days progress, these protests, demonstrations continue and continue to grow? 
but there isn't the violence. Then what's the strategy for him, who, who, for Donald Trump, who's always looking for an enemy, always looking for a win here? What happens if the violence disperses and it's just, uh, it's just wave after protest after protest? This is an ongoing uh, and active conversation that I've had with people over the last couple of days where we've seen the violence, the level of escalation really start to uh, tamp down. And we've simply seen these protests become uh, peaceful marches, which is a constitutional right for the American people. And and people are saying, well, what will happen uh, if these continue to be peaceful? Donald Trump's not going to be able to uh, kind of rail against these protesters as being violent, as being agitators, as being, uh, you know, uh, in the way uh, of people trying to carry out their day to day life. And it simply could lead to the president simply choosing a new target, trying to change the conversation uh, by talking about something to get uh, people riled up again, to get his base uh, back uh, kind of to, to, to where he wants this to be. Peaceful protests are going to be uh, uh, kind of a negative thing for the president because he simply can't go after them. But there is no need for these protests to continue to be violent. You know, they were trying to get their voices heard, uh, and, and that's now happening. So, you, you know, the president is, is choosing now to go after the media for the way that they're portraying uh, how the president uh, and his administration has handled these, these protests. Uh, And he's also trying to just simply bring up political matters that have nothing to do with it. And I think that's what we're going to see going forward. Uh, how had how would this have changed his campaign strategy? I mean, you know, the president still stands up in, in the last couple of days and, and, and basically says that the African-American vote loves him. Uh, we certainly aren't seeing that on the nightly news and such. How does this change his campaign strategy? I mean, this could be uh, this could be a damaging blow to the president's strategy. This could be a blow to the Republican strategy as a whole, simply for their inability to stand up to the president uh, and say no, to stand up to the president and say your words are incorrect, your words are are making the situation worse, uh, and that is something that is starting to resonate across the country. You know, when we saw the president leave the White House after uh, having attacked. The, the protesters in the media that were standing outside of Lafayette Park on Monday, and we saw him walk across to the church for that photo op, he was joined by members of the administration. Uh, he was, jo- you know, this, this compromised the attorney general, this compromised the, the secretary of defense, it compromised people who stand with the president. These are all members of his administration, appointed and lifelong Republicans. Uh, this could have a damaging effect going down the road heading towards November. Uh, last question here, Reggie. How has the whole COVID-19 pandemic uh, affected all of this? Has this come into the discussion at all? I mean, many doctors here are concerned uh, about mass protests and, and safe social distancing and such. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it, it almost feels like the, the COVID-19 crisis, which is obviously still active and is obviously still a pandemic, it almost feels like this was a story that didn't happen or, or just, you know, wound, uh, wrapped up a couple of months ago. Uh, this is still an active concern for health experts, for epidemiologists, uh, and for healthcare systems across the U.S., as we have thousands upon thousands of people that are being uh, put together in incredibly close spaces. There are a lot of uh, local leaders, including the D.C. mayor, saying if you're going to these protests, you need to go out and you need to actively get yourself a test to see whether or not you are now positive or if you have the antibodies. But I think this is going to have an impact two weeks down the road. Uh, Maryland and D.C. are actively working towards opening up their second phase to get more people back and get businesses reopened. You know, this we, we know now after all these months that this disease uh, manifests inside of you for weeks before any symptoms could be shown. So we could be approaching 
mid-June to approaching the beginning of July as people are actively into approaching phase three of reopening and things may have to step back because there are such a spike in cases that are expected. Uh, One more. Sorry, uh, Reggie. Uh, Has Donald Trump commented at all on these new charges for these four officers? No, the president uh, has has been silent. Uh, he's been all over Twitter uh, trying to talk about, you know, his own political agenda and, and continuing to talk about uh, the protesters being terrorists. And he's tweeting things like law and order. But he has not he's not wading in uh, to the ongoing charges, to the ongoing investigation that's still happening with these four officers, nor has he chimed in on the fact that the first of several uh, long and painful goodbyes for George Floyd are starting to take place today. He has no events on his schedule. He's not going to be seen in public today. And this is something that is likely going to spark another talking point about how blind the president is to the ongoing situation outside of the little bits of violence that he's trying to bring front and center. Reggie Cicchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated uh, and be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move on and continue this discussion and try to learn as much as we possibly can. Uh, and, and let's bring in Muna Bile. She is a bilingual black justice coordinator, Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, and with us now. Muna, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Muna, we've certainly seen what has been going on uh, with protests, demonstrations uh, across around the world. Uh, since the death of George Floyd. Is it different this time? We've seen this happen time and time again. We always say we're going to change. Is it different this time? Unfortunately, I wish I could say it was different. I don't think it is uh, different. As you mentioned, we see this all of the time. Um, I think what um, we are just finally starting to understand is that Canada is not immune to racism, um, we remember Andrew Loku, Abdurrahman Abdi, uh, Jandre Campbell, and many others who have failed, uh, who were failed by mental health services, but also killed by police in what often looks like uh, state-sanctioned murder. Um, so, in um, 2017, there was a coroner jury uh, made, which made 30 recommendations after the fatal shooting of Andrew Loku by Toronto Police. And till this day, many have not been implemented. And now we have another death on our hands, which is that of, unfortunately, Regis uh, Korczynski-Paquet. So um, this idea that, you know, this only happens across the border and that it stops there is a fallacy. We know, for instance, that in Hamilton, we were supposed to have a Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center, um, which was launched on April 4th, 2018, right? But that was also paused within 10 months. So that sends a strong message to those that are living with racism on a daily basis that, and particularly the black community who are most targeted in these hate-based incidents. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do and we're not, we're barely getting started. So Uh, the eight minute, uh, over eight minute video that we saw that everybody has seen of George Floyd losing his life, uh, Mm -hmm. being murdered. Uh, um, how does that change this discussion? Does it not? I think um, what it certainly does is that now uh, this racism, this anti-black racism, which we have always known, which was deeply entrenched and still is in Canadian institutions, policies and practices, um, 
and which has unfortunately often made anti-black racism appear normal or invincible to the large uh, white society, is now being recorded. It's now being published. It's being shared often on social media. So you can't um, assume that this is a unique issue that's happening to maybe two or three individuals. We know that this is the reality of uh, many uh, members of the black community in this country, as well as, of course, across the border. And what is happening is now there is more organizations, more um, uh, protests, and people who uh, initially thought that they didn't have any stake in this conversation are joining after educating themselves and learning about how this is affecting all of us. Would you say that this video has more impact than any policy to date? I mean, it has, has it not? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really uh, disheartening to say, but I think it really does because not a single um, policy or legislation has been uh, strong enough to address these issues up to date. What actually is happening is that people are seeing, like you and I, these videos, and that is um, enraging and bringing the rage up to those that have not only experienced this, but those that are allies. And folks are finding out that being an ally is to act on that. And I think that is what is pushing the conversation further. And people are taking advantage of this momentum to hopefully um, resonate with legislators, with officials, to make uh, robust uh, policies and end these lip service, these conversations, these consultations, these ideas that we need to have maybe more conversations to understand what these issues are about. We're finally understanding that this is an issue that we have always known about, that there's no need for uh, community consultation anymore. There's enough research, statistics, report, um, that demonstrates that this is a problem. It's an active problem in our society. Yeah, I don't think we need any more proof of this. Uh, we're certainly seeing to see it on a daily basis. As I mentioned earlier, there's a, there's a video that has surfaced today in regard to a situation uh, regarding an RCMP officer and an indigenous person, which you know we'll talk about at a later date on the sh- or later time on the show later on today. But yeah. you know, it it is everywhere, and you can't can can people deny this anymore? I think um, people still, unfortunately, do deny this. Um, as though it's, uh, you know, unique to other um, countries. But the reality is there is no denying of it, you know. And I think what is helpful now is that allies are taking part of the conversation. The burden isn't always and shouldn't be on racialized people. This is a public uh, health crisis. Racism is a crisis in our country. And I think what's happening finally is that those that didn't think they had um, any ways to talk about this or maybe felt uncomfortable, didn't know the, the language to express themselves, are understanding that it's a journey to learn. It's a journey to be an ally, to understand that your fellow human beings' lives matter just as much as yours. So I am hopeful for that shift. I, I certainly hope that it will, however, turn into real legislations and that people will understand that you can request uh, a serious response from your officials. Uh, I'm a white guy. I have never experienced this kind of treatment. 
What do you think white people realize the extent of this? And and that's why, to me, as a white person, this video is so impactful. Do you think, and, and you know, we can't deny, I, I can't sit here and say, well, I didn't know this was going on, because that's that's crap. We all knew what's going on. Um, right. very, very similar to the situation in, in the seniors' homes and such. But uh, I, I, I don't think I understood it was this violent, this malicious. What do you think white people realize what the average black person goes through on a daily basis? I think it's difficult, you know, sometimes to understand what people are going through unless you can walk in their shoes, right? Um, but you can certainly be a, a supporter. You can certainly be stand in solidarity with a community. Um, and I, but what is certainly happening is now we have access to all this information, you know, where before we could deny and push it back on simply anecdotal um, that these are anecdotal responses. We know now that there's facts. We know now that there are numbers to uh, support these um, positions. And what I'm happy to see is that people are taking it upon themselves to go ahead and learn and educate themselves and ask themselves, you know, if you're in a room um, of uh, senior decision-making folks and that everyone in the room looks the same and thinks the same and has the same lived experience, now they feel a bit more comfortable, and I hope they do, in asking, well, where are the other voices? Why is it just us making these decisions? Um, I know that, you know, a hashtag doesn't uh, equate uh, necessarily a strong support, but people now are marching, they're donating, they're educating themselves, they're educating and having very uncomfortable conversations within their personal circles, whether it's their family, friends, or neighbors. Um, and that's the way that we can... Uh, together address these issues. Um, they're aware, but for the longest time, I believe they thought perhaps that this was not a problem that they could um, deal with or they could resolve or they could even um, get involved in. But I think now when it's coming to their front steps uh, via these videos, via these uh, articles, um, they're more willing to um, get involved and less willing to deny it that it doesn't exist. Uh, I'm a guy in my in my 50s. I remember being younger and thinking, you know, we live in Canada. We all have uh, opportunity. My, my mother wasn't born here. She came here as an immigrant as a kid. I'm first generation Canadian. You know, we're led to believe that we all have the same opportunity. We all have the same tools to use. And, and that may be the case in theory. Um, and, you know, even those that are marginalized, they can still get ahead, uh, although it may take longer. I think what I've realized over the last 25, 30 years as I've grown as an individual is that, you know, even when those are discriminated, who are discriminated against even work harder than the rest of us and, and, and do obtain that success or, or, or are qualified to, to, to move ahead then are passed by because of the color of their skin. And I think that's what a lot of us in my in the white community are not realizing. Yes, we all have the same opportunities, but once we get to the front door, some of us are let in and some are not, just simply because of, of the color of their skin. And in 2020, it, 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 it's frightening to know that that still happens. Absolutely. And I... 
I'm glad you said that because I think that's the disconnect that people, especially in, you know, an older generation, um, have a hard time understanding is that, you know, hey, I've also came to this country um, and I have tried uh, and worked my, you know, as hard as possible and I've learned and I've put in the work and that's how I became successful. But the reality is that door remains closed to these community members. Yeah. It remains closed despite having these degrees, despite having this experience, despite having the willingness to do the work. Um, and that's because of the systemic racism that we face. Um, you know, and it's difficult sometimes to explain to people when they don't see it on, for themselves. And when um, these um, institutions and this racism that we speak of is so insidious in the way it is um, in all fashions of um, Canadian institutions, it is present in uh, whether it's, like I said, uh, policies or practices, it is uh, present in the way that we view each other, the way that we promote each other, the way that we um, even take care of each other within the health sector, right? Um, uh, currently, with this um, pandemic, uh, we have been asking uh, consistently for a race-based data collection. And that isn't so that uh, a specific group of folks can be treated differently but it's to show that it is affecting that community differently. It is affecting them in a disproportionate rate. And if the, the goal is for us to get ourselves rid of this virus, then we must look at all these facts to make the best decision possible. And I would say that, that applies to other um, instances when we want to address an issue, we must look at all the facts and not deny one because it makes us uncomfortable, because maybe we think that it um, puts us in a light of the of an oppressor or uh, or in any negative light. This isn't a personal issue. This is an institutional problem that we all have a stake in. Uh, many have talked uh, and directed their anger towards the, the police. Is this more a societal issue than a police issue? And referring back to that uh, systematic racism, how do we fix that? How, if it's so embedded, if it's so deep, how do you fix that? Um, so, you know, the police is an, is an extension of our society, right? Um, they mm-hmm. work uh, through our tax uh, money. Um, I think that, you know, the city in this case has a lot of uh, power and a lot of opportunity to really make meaningful change. Um, in, the, in the context of uh, the police, for instance, um, it can certainly look at, we can certainly look at ways that we can um, welcome or um, ensure that racialized uh, community members, racialized folks, are at the senior uh, position level making the decisions within these boards, especially within the police board. Um, so it's important, for instance, for the city to appoint black individuals to leadership positions, whether it's in social service agencies and public institutions, commissions, but like I said, mainly and especially in the police board. We need to, folks that understand through um, uh, not only experience, but experts um, that can apply an anti-black racism lens in the ways that these um, officers operate, in the ways that they respond to um, mental health crises, right? There is no reason why a mental health crisis um, should result in death when police is being called to help 
Um, and so I think there are opportunities where the city can certainly take a leadership role. And by taking that first step, that meaningful first step, it will hopefully um, influence other institutions in doing the same. How do we keep this conversation constructive and out of the extremes? And I mean by that both the extreme left and the extreme right. Um, Because we've certainly seen, you know, those extreme elements try to hijack this cause. And and you see that, I guess, at at every protest, at every demonstration. Mm -hmm. But how do you keep this conversation uh, out of the extremes and constructive and realistic? Because and here, here's my example. You know, we've heard lots of of chatter in regard to defunding uh, the police. I, I certainly think we should always question how our money's being spent and whether it's being spent efficiently. But mm-hmm. some may view that as an extreme measure. How do we keep this in the center and constructive, where we can actually see some results? Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, the first thing is that we are all human. We make mistakes. You know, we. We may not use the right language. We may have the intention, but our actions may um, take a different turn. And so we have to be kind to one another and have these conversations. These conversations are not easy. They're difficult to have within your own family. Imagine having that with your colleagues or with um, officials. Um, So it's not an easy uh, task. I don't have, unfortunately, the solutions, but I think that um, in having these conversations, we can first of all understand and for once rid this idea that racism isn't uh, a Canadian issue. It's not a Canadian problem. That's the first step. Following that, I believe, um, you know, there, there are those that are currently on the ground and fighting for their lives. And that may come off as um, an extreme uh, it, uh, an, an extreme step, but I think the rage is a ra- righteous one, and we should listen to that. We should understand where that is coming from, right? Um, when you have so much pain and trauma that you carry, and that you have, you know, asked for um, reports that you you have actually made reports, you have made um, studies, you have put together recommendations. You have met with officials, you have protested, you have supported, and nothing has worked. You know, I can understand why folks are extremely frustrated with the system, extremely frustrated with other um, community members that seem to just turn their back on because it doesn't apply to them, right? So um, that's the first thing. But then I also understand that you know, um, this idea of defunding the police may seem as a uh, such an extreme idea to many. But the police aren't social workers. The police are not counselors. Um, you know, we can use our funds, our money, our taxpaying dollars towards these social services and programs that will actually support and help and use trained experts to deal with these issues as opposed to calling an officer to respond to them at all times. Officers are not um, meant to deal with all of the elements of our society. Valid point. Uh, Before we leave here, I I just want to ask you, Muna, what message do you want citizens to take from this conversation? Um, That we need your support. This isn't a fight that is only for racialized or indigenous bodies. It is for all of us. 
we need everyone at the table. Um, and that the fact of, uh, you know, saying black lives matter doesn't mean that other lives don't matter. It means that without the without black lives mattering right now, nothing else matters. Like we cannot expect our community members to, um, you know, hold their tongue and expect that their lives mean nothing at the expense of others. We need everyone to come together to collaborate to listen to each other. And if you feel uncomfortable or you don't understand something, you can educate yourself to be an ally. You know, and being an ally isn't only about uh, reading. It's about also taking action and supporting organizations that are doing this work, collaborating with them. It's also using your power, your vote, and ensuring that the officials that you vote for understand and are not only giving you lip service when it comes to election time. And if the conversation is awkward and uh, and makes you feel uncomfortable, uh, you should run towards it because chances are it's a conversation that you uh, need to have. Need to have, yes. Uh, Muna Bile has been with us, bilingual Black Justice Coordinator, Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. Muna, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. We'll continue the discussion. Uh, be well. Thank you so much. One of the suggestions made earlier this week by local activists was be was to defund police and divert those funds to other initiatives that benefit communities and local issues such as poverty and affordability. Uh, is that the answer? Great article in uh, Raise the Hammer. Ryan McGreal is with us now, editor of Raise the Hammer, and he is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. It's always a pleasure. You know you're going to get blowback when you uh, write an article like this. Uh, I can understand the passion behind this and, and and the need for this call, but is this something uh, that is realistic? So, you know, the, one of the reasons I, I wrote this piece was that I think when I first saw the term, uh, you know, it immediately sort of made me uncomfortable and feel and felt nervous. And yet people who I have a lot of respect for uh, we're making a very passionate call for it. So I did a little bit of research, tried to figure out what is the argument for defunding. And once you start breaking down what money is being spent and not being spent on, you know, throughout our social services program, and the amount of money that's going into policing, that's not going into housing, that's not going into mental health services, it's not going into, um, you know, anti-racism, uh, it becomes increasingly obvious that the solution to our problems has to involve making different choices about how we prioritize the money that we have and where we invest it. Do we want to keep throwing money at buying $300,000 armored tanks, or do we want to build more housing? This is really what it comes down to. We have to decide what our priorities are, what our values are, and then we have to allocate money based on that. Uh, and that makes total sense. I can understand that side of the argument. Some will say, are you robbing Peter to pay Paul here? So the question is, you know, what exactly, what problems are we trying to solve? You know, one of the, one of the reasons why uh, there is such a problem with, um, with violence and, and the police is that, you know, the police are trained in use of force. They're not trained in psychology. They're not trained yeah. in sociology. Mm-hmm. They're not trained in mental health. They're not trained in, you know, uh, drug addiction. You know, and yet we expect the police to take on all of these social problems that are really not, they're not criminal issues, they're not policing issues, but we throw the police at them because the police have all the money and the resources. We're setting the police up to fail, we're setting the community up to fail, and I think we could actually solve these problems a lot more effectively by targeting our resources to the people who are trained to actually solve them.
Uh, that being said, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, and 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 I, you know, I, I remember in your article you said this won't go over with the law and order types. Um, again, aren't we all law and order types? Isn't that what we all want? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, and I also want to point out that defund means different things to different people. You know, I mean, I, I tend not to be an extremist about things. For me, what I, when I see the argument for defunding, I see an argument for rebalancing. You know, there are people who are calling, I think, quite passionately for the abolition of the police. Um, you know, that maybe is farther than we need to go. But I like the fact that it sets a strong boundary to the debate and it kind of forces us to reckon with, OK, well, if we don't want to eliminate the police completely and if the status quo isn't acceptable, then what are some options we have in between those two? And I think that's a conversation that we need to have. Are you scared that if we go too far to the fringes, we'll lose the mainstream? People will just say, you know what, this is getting out of hand. And, and here's what I equate it to, and this should be interesting. I'm interested in your response. It was like when Elizabeth May came out a few weeks ago and said the oil industry is dead. I can understand her passion. I can understand why she's saying that. But I've yet to talk to a uh, uh, an expert that says it's not going to take 15 to 50 years to do. This, to me, sounds like the same sort of extremism. The way you've explained it makes total sense. I mean, it's, it's a rebound balance of where we're putting funds uh that being said are you worried that this conversation is going to get lost to the extremes and the solution lies somewhere in the middle well the solution always lies somewhere in the middle you know i i, I like to quote uh you know the late jack layton who used to say that change is what happens in the space between strongly held opinions and i find mm. people who are progressive people who you know kind of want to make change we often make the mistake of starting with our endpoints you know, the, your initial offer right. is what you're hoping to end up with. Well, you're going to end up with an awful lot less than that. So I like the idea of actually starting with a strong thesis and then seeing just how much you can kind of move that envelope towards. Are you worried that that strong thesis? Are you worried that strong thesis scares people away? You know what? I think people who are going to get scared away by that are going to get scared away by anything. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look, for example, at the protests and demonstrations that have been happening around the world lately, some of the same people who are decrying demonstrators for taking their, their anger and their outrage to the streets are the same people who criticize athletes for silently kneeling during the anthem. There are some people who are never going to be moved by a desire for justice, and we have to stop trying to pander to them. Do you think, how much impact does this video have? I've asked many people who we've talked about regarding the George Floyd issue, what's different here? Is there something different here that will change things? I would relate that to the video. We we can't deny that eight and a half minutes of what we saw. It's it's really searing and it's really visceral. And I think it's important, you know, for people who are looking to be allies to recognize that while we are shocked and horrified by what we see, people who are racialized, who experience this day in and day out, are horrified, but they're not shocked. This yeah. is a repetition of a story that has happened over and over and over again. And that frustration has boiled over the top. And I think we need to recognize that this is really a mo an inflection point where we can do something meaningful to change the arc of the future. Ryan McGreal has been with us. Ryan, unfortunately, we're running out of time here. Editor of Raise the Hammer got a great article in there in regard to uh, defunding the police. But again, th that has many issues, uh, that has many interpretations depending upon who you ask. Ryan, thanks for the time as always. Uh, good luck. Be well. Thank you. Same to you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about many angles of COVID-19, how it has affected us, how it will change the world moving forward, uh, whether it's from an education standpoint, an economic standpoint, a health standpoint, obviously, uh, and even more so a mental health uh, standpoint. A new study from the University of Toronto suggests that economic upheaval and other issues surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic could result in a spike of suicide deaths. To talk more about all of this, Roger McIntyre is with us, Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Roger, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, and thanks for having me and covering this important topic. We have talked uh, at length on the show about the mental health aspect of this. Obviously, uh, it, it is affecting us. And if we're seeing an increase in just general mental health concern and issues, is it not obvious that there would be a spike in suicide? Well, those things tend to correlate together, but let's get into some of the specifics. Because of the response to this virus, that is the stay-at-home, the shutdown of the economy, both the supply side and the demand side, we are witnessing in Canada an economic shock we've not seen in decades. We've lost 15 years of employment gains in two months Hmm. with 3 million people out of work. And the Canadian Mortgage and Housing a corporation is stating that 20% of Canadians will be asking for forbearance on their mortgage within the next one month. So there is a large, large percentage of Canadians who are under a lot of stress. And one of the most replicated and most powerful observations we have in population health is that when unemployment dramatically increases, that increases the risk for suicide. So the approach to this viral pandemic has to be smart and intelligent. That is, it has to recognize both the physical health and the mental health of our population, which means preserving the economy and protecting your physical health. That is a a false decision. Which one is it? Staying at home or going back to work? That's a false decision. The decision is how do you do both safely and preserve people's mental health? Is the you know, again? We've talked about this since this all started, and and once we got past the two or three week uh, point of this, uh, I guess we're into week twelve. Uh, if you want to start at the March break, uh, you know, people started to talk about mental health in in the first couple of weeks uh, and the isolation and how hard it was on us. Is this more related to the isolation or the fact of the insecurity around lack of employment or or losing one's job? It's a great question. It's all the above. I call it, in fact, the triple threat. So staying at home and being socially distanced or physically distanced. Second is the incredible economic and employment shock. And thirdly is the never-ending anxiety about this virus. Are we going to get it? Are we going to send it on to our loved ones or friends or what have you? So this is the triple threat of social uh, distancing or physical distancing, insecurity, and anxiety. By the way, each one of those events is enough to increase the risk for mental yeah. distress and mental disorders. Yeah. All three occurring at the same time. You know what's interesting is that during the so-called Spanish flu, this is back 1918, 1919, the economies in the United States that shut down the fastest and the most aggressively were the ones that bounced back the fastest. So when you have a virus coming at you, you have to shut things down. That's a good thing to do. That's not a strategy. That's just called what you have to do. The strategy now is to open the economy. You need evidence to guide your decisions. The World Bank speaks about smart containment. That is, let's have a smart allocation of our resources and, our, and how we're protecting people. But it doesn't make any sense to, in fact, be telling people to stay at home, 
lose your job, lose your well-being, lose your small business uh, to protect yourself from the virus. That makes no sense because your health is not just your physical health. Mm. It's your physical health and your mental health. So you actually have to have both of these addressed simultaneously. Are we surprised how it has affected our mental health? Did we see this coming? After all, this is the first crisis of a privileged generation. Did we see this coming? I don't think anybody saw this coming. And in fact, if you go back over the last century, we've done this uh, with my team, my research team, uh, you know, so many times in the last two to three months. We couldn't find any event quite like this whether it's an economic shock, Great Recession, the Asian financial crisis, right back to the Great Depression, in some of the, uh, you know, the pandemics, not just the one that we know, the Spanish flu, of course, we know SARS in Ontario and uh, very, very well, but also the Hong Kong flu of 1968. We could find nothing like this because there's never been a situation ever where you've got a third to half of the world's population being told to stay at home while they're under economic threat while they're, in fact, under tremendous anxiety. Nothing quite like this in the books. So I don't think anyone was prepared for this. I think due credit is worth mentioning. The government has really stepped up federally and provincially and locally to really, in fact, provide wage subsidy, to provide some income support. These are key aspects. We, of course, want to see uh, uh, job retraining. Unfortunately, some of these jobs are not coming back. So people are going to need to be job retrained, and this is important. What I really, really hope is an outcome of this is a real uh, profound leadership-driven rethink of mental health services in this country, which has never been accused of being particularly very good with respect to access, availability, and quality. And I don't think anyone now is unaware of how important your mental health is, given what everyone's going through. And what we need to have is a, a thoughtful uh, really crafting of a mental health system that provides access to our vulnerable people. Because don't forget, not everyone has Wi-Fi access. And we really need to, in fact, move to a more digital and more virtual approach, which I, I know many have done, but that certainly is something that's not available for everyone. So my hope as a, you know, as a advocate of this area is that people have better mental health services coming out of this terrible, unprecedented and situation no one could have predicted. Uh, we, we seem, uh, what about the different phases we're going through? Because again, uh, you know, we're into 12, uh, week 12 of this. Think about how we felt at week two, four, six, eight, getting up to here. Uh, we remember as we were starting to, uh, to crest the, the, the peak of this, everybody was, are we on the downside yet? Are we on the downside yet? And then finally we're on the downside and we start to open things up, but people realize it's it's not a case of just flipping a switch and open the doors and letting us all run through the daisies. Exactly. This is going to be a very gradual thing. So how, once we've been anticipating the opening of doors, now we realize, wow, this is still a long journey ahead of us. It, it really is, and I think you've made a great point. I don't think we should be just switching a light on and all back to normal, and I think there should be a very gradual and probably very regionally uh, uh, informed approach to this. Some regions are more affected, some are less affected than others, and just like anything else, it should be tailored. But you're absolutely right, this should be gradual. I think what's especially How do we deal with that false hope, though, that, oh, it's opening up, but oh, it's not like it used to be? Well, to be perfectly frank, this is where leadership comes in. In other words, you see, strategy is not shutting the economy down. Strategy is opening it up. And risk aversion is job, job number one when you're an elected official. 
So what we need is bold leadership, you see, because when someone's told, by the way, here's the finish line, and then you get just to that finish line, then it's moved again. Oh, by the way, here's the finish line, and then it's moved again. What we know in the world of animal research on stress, uncertainty as to when it's ever going to end is the worst stress possible. In other words, we need to have an exit strategy based on multilateral input. You see, there needs to be input from the business community, from the medical community, from the political community, I think from a variety of organizations to come up with a best informed decision. There's not, no such thing as a, politic, uh, a perfect decision. It's a decision that has to meet everyone's needs. And unfortunately, too many people in this country are under a lot of stress. So we need to have a fixed time. We need to have a fixed time, a courageously assigned endpoint here. And that needs to be followed with all the necessary public health recommendations. Definitely don't be switching lights on overnight. And we need to have, I think, people to respect and show decency to their uh, neighbors and to our citizens as to respecting the public health and move it forward. Again, it's a it, look, you know, I'm not a politician. Uh, I know this is a is going to now demand leadership uh, in the political space to make this decision because, poli- you know, the political uh, elected officials remembered for what they did wrong, not what they did right. And so this is something that most politicians would, in fact, be a, a little cautious with because of their political uh, existential threat here. But the reality is, look, we can look to other economies of the world, in Europe, for example, and a few other economies, and we can learn what have they done with respect to mitigating the risk, preserving people's mental health, preserving the, the private economy, not just the public economy. It's best for all of us. So I think we need to take an evidence-based approach, courageous leadership, and let's, in fact, have multilateral input guiding these decisions. Uh, we're talking with uh, Roger McIntyre, uh, professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto uh, in, in regard to mental health and COVID-19. Um, Roger, we have seen, obviously, COVID-19 and what it has brought us, but also in that span of three months, we have seen the shooting in New Brunswick, the snowbird crash, uh, and, and now the situation uh, with George Floyd in the United yep. States. It just yep, seems absolutely. like it's one thing after another after another. Absolutely. How do you compartmentalize all of this and, and, and package it and, and get through it when it appears that it's just one thing after another? It's getting worse and worse and worse. Well, you're right. And these are, you know, each one of these events is just shocking and, and horrific. Uh, and some of these events are more acute, like the, you know, the terrible situation in Nova Scotia with the mass murder as well as this long-standing problem we have in society with respect to racism, that, of course, this ugly incident that happened a couple of weeks ago in Minneapolis. Uh, look, I, I wasn't around, frankly, in the 60s, uh, uh, and I've heard uh, metaphors or parallels with the late 60s, you know, with uh, upheaval with Vietnam, and, of course, there was uh, a lot of unrest in the United States, civil rights movements and all kinds of things, and people have drawn similarities. Uh, I think what we can say is there's a lot of distress. Uh, I think it's probably over, overly simplifying it, but there's a lot of distress and a lot of people with very valid distress with respect to the horror in Nova Scotia, with respect to uh, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, national icons like snowbirds and the disaster happened there. And then we've got people who are very distressed about their jobs. They want to take care of their family. They're, they're proud people, and now they're being... Uh, 
you know, demoralized. This is awful. And then you have this long-standing racism issue, which, unfortunately, uh, Canada is not off the hook. It's a major issue in our country as well. So, look, I, I think that this is more than ever is going to require collective, powerful, bold leadership. Some might say, Roger, where are you going to find that? I say, well, I, I'm still hoping it exists. Um, and uh, that's what it needs. It's not going to go away on its own. It needs leadership. I can't think of a time in my last 10, 20 years where we don't need more bold leadership than now at the provincial level, local levels, but obviously federal level, because what you're seeing is a lot of distress for good reasons. And leadership, leadership and leadership is what does it. What advice do you have to those who may be feeling the anxiety, the pressure, the stress uh, of what is going on in today's world for all of the reasons that, that you just mentioned? If, if there's someone out there and they're not feeling right, what, what yeah. advice do you have for them? Two things. First is, is that we don't need to convince ourselves that we're passive victims. Now, I'm speaking specifically about this viral pandemic situation and the mental health stress. We talked about a number of events occurring. Let me just focus on the issue of what we've been talking about, that being the suicide, mental health distress in the context of this pandemic. There are things we can do. Some of these sound very basic, but they work. You've got to structure your day, get normal sleep. You've got to really, you know, portion control on food and alcohol portion control and how much media you're consuming as well, not just news, but social. I think people really have to, in fact, actively reach out if they can to organizations, groups, if they're part of religious institutions, that too, friends, family, and uh, keep yourself active. Keep, keep boosting your resiliency. These things work. If you are getting to the point you're not sleeping, horrific nightmares, you're traumatized, you're having very negative views about yourself in the future, Go see your healthcare provider. People are still open for business. Uh, we're seeing a significant reduction of people going to emergency services, a significant reduction going to primary care services. All of us are concerned about this because many people have other chronic problems that are not being addressed. So if you have an acute problem, you're really in a lot of distress, or a more chronic problem that's worse, then reach out to your care provider. See someone, assess the treatments are good, uh, and people are, would be happy to see you. Don't stay at home and suffer. Go talk to your care provider. How important is it to talk to people? Uh, even though we are at a time of self-distancing, self-isolation, obviously we're sociable characters, uh, social beings, we, we want to chat, but obviously can't because of situation, the situation the way it is. How important is it then to text, uh, write a letter, uh, pick up the phone, do anything, just make, even if it's over the fence from however many meters apart, how important is it that we keep talking to each other? It's infinitely important. One of the features that we've identified in people who are really resilient, in other words, people who just seem to roll with the punches, no matter what goes at them, they just seem to just get on with things. One of the features about these persons is that they have what we call an internal locus of control. In other words, they take action. They don't watch what's happening. They're taking action. What does that really mean? It means what I talked about. You take action, structure your day. You take action and get extra. You take action and reach out to people. Write letters. Do what you need to do to keep yourself active. That locus of control, when it's internal, is highly associated with a more resilient person. And this is not something that necessarily that you're just born with, and that's the end of it. You can mature this muscle. You can develop this by doing it. And uh, people are finding when they do that, not only does it reduce their distress, and give them a sense of control, 
but what they're also doing is they're finding that, heck, they're actually getting other things out of this. They're meeting people, finding other social connections, other ways to, uh, in fact, you know, sort of carry this terrible, terrible burden. At the end of the day, I think people should be aware that the government, I think, has been doing some very good things, quite frankly. But I also think people should be aware that they can do things that, that, that really sort of move them from a, a more passive existence to an active existence. And to the extent possible, to the extent you have friends and family, reach out to them as well. I, I recognize that everyone has friends and family they can contact. And in that case, what about community resources or you know, other types of organizations in, in our community? I think now more than ever, you're seeing a, a will, an openness, a want, a motivation to do these types of things. And I would encourage that strongly. Dr. Roger McIntyre has been with us, Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology, University of Toronto. Roger, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Be well. Thanks for having me. Take good care of yourself. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.